we know that the most important thing that you can do for your life is to build great relationships, relationships with your family, with your friends, with colleagues, with business partners. The thing that is going to determine your wealth, your health, your longevity, your, your net worth, and also your sense of self-worth, that all comes from relationships. And communication is the backbone of good relationships. So how do you become a super communicator? Welcome to the Afford Anything podcast, the show that understands you can afford anything, but not everything. Every choice that you make is a trade-off against something else. And that doesn't just apply to your money. It applies to any limited resource that you need to manage, your time, your energy, your attention, what matters most, and how do you make decisions accordingly? That's what we're here to answer. I'm your host, I'm Paula Pant, and with me is Pulitzer Prize winning <laughs> Charles Duhigg, uh, the author of three books, most recently Super Communicators. You worked for the LA Times, you worked for the New York Times, now you're at the New Yorker. Yeah. And wh what was your Pulitzer for? It was for a series about Apple, and it was actually the same year that my first book, The Power of Habit, came out. It was a pretty overwhelming year. <laughs> in good ways, in good ways, but it was a lot. Wow. Then The Power of Habit was a mega, mega bestseller. I mean, that was, I remember when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was I was enormously fortunate to have people discover the book. And, and actually, Super Communicators came out of that book a little bit because I would get all these emails from people who said, I read the book and I feel like I've changed my own habits, but there's these other people whose habits I really want to change. How do I change them? <laughs> and that, of course, is communication. Learning right. how to communicate with others is critical to, to being a success. That leads us to today's conversation, and I'm going to kick off with this question. Tell me about your dad. <laughs> that's a great that's a great first question because <laughs> you know my dad passed away six years ago and after i went to the funeral i came home and everyone would say things like i'm sorry and my condolences and nobody ever asked me that question what what what's your dad like and i like i was like so desperate to tell people about my dad like i had just been to this funeral i heard these eulogies and like had been thinking for weeks about like the role he played in my life and it's a great question thank you for asking he was a wonderful man what role did he play in your life you know so he was a lawyer in albuquerque new mexico so i grew up in albuquerque um and he was born in 1929 so he's older than most other people's dads mm -hmm. he constantly like encouraged me to do crazy things not like crazy physically but like why don't you get an internship at that newspaper i'll bet you that they'll let you in or why don't you invite your principal to come to dinner with you at some speech that I had tickets for and all of that stuff sort of taught me how to, how to be who I am in the world. Mm. So, and he was just so, he was so enthusiastic about my successes, which I try and do for my own kids. Wait, tell me, tell me about your dad. What's your dad like? Oh, wow. My dad. So, and, and a quick time out for all of the people who are listening to this, who are wondering why we're having this conversation. <laughs> so there are three kinds of conversations we could be having. We, we could be having a logistical conversation. Yep. We could be having a conversation in which we're establishing our identities, our, yeah. our social identities and where we exist within the, the fabric. And then we could be having a, more of a, a relational understanding one another. Absolutely emotional. Emotional conversation. Yeah. It sounds as though we're pr probably having that one. I think you're right. Yeah. You're right. I think that particularly the fact that my father passed away and that, that you were kind enough to ask about it. That is kind of emotional, right? And that doesn't mean I have to tell you all about my feelings or cry, mm -hmm. but it does mean that 
inside my brain, those parts that are related to emotional conversation are activated. And, and if you are similarly activated, if you respond or you invite me to have an emotional conversation with you, then we'll really connect with each other. Right. And so your follow-up question then, when you invited me to tell you about my dad, is that that reciprocity. That's exactly right. That there, There's this reciprocity of authenticity and vulnerability that's so important, right? And, and I'm sure everyone listening has felt this, that there are these times when like you are the person who asks questions and the other person just answers them. Right. And after a while, you're like, okay, do you want to ask me a question? <laughs> <laughs> the back and forth, the reciprocity. And if I said something really vulnerable and you just said, oh yeah, that's interesting. And then went on something else, I would feel like I was making you this offer and you were kind of turning it away. Right. So it's important to have that reciprocity to ask questions back and forth. Right. So I will answer your question, but I also just at a meta level for the people who are listening who are wondering why we are talking about this, having the the skill of communication is valuable for for business, for I mean for literally anything that you do in the world revolves around relationships. Yeah. Whether it's running a company or advancing your career or having a successful marriage, anything, literally anything that you do. Communication is our superpower. It is the thing that has as has taken humans and made them so much more successful than every other species. It is the thing that builds countries and nations and families. If you know how to be a super communicator, if you know how to communicate with other people, you have this, this superpower that right. brings you success in any realm because it teaches you, it allows you to connect with other people. Right. Exactly. You know, everyone has goals, whether they're making 50,000 and they want to be making 150,000. Right. And they're going to need some promotions to do that or whether they're they're making one hundred and fifty thousand, but they're miserable and they want to retire early. Yeah. And they're going to need to buy some rental properties to do that and talk to their tenants. Everyone's got some next level that they want to get. to. And communication is almost always the path. That's exactly right. Or even if you're having if if work is great mm-hmm. and, and my guess is if work is great, it's only because you're communicating well with your coworkers. Mm-hmm. Work could be fantastic. And if home is a disaster, then your whole life is a disaster. So I fell into this pattern with my wife, which is that I would come home from work after like a long day mm-hmm. and I would start complaining about my day. And she very reasonably would say something like, oh, like, why don't you take your boss out to lunch? And like, you guys can get to know each other, like a solution. And instead of being able to hear her, I would get even more upset. Mm. And then she would get upset because I was getting upset for no apparent reason. And so I went to these researchers and what they told me is exactly what you said before, which is that we think of discussions as being one about one thing, but actually there's many kinds of conversations and they all fall into these three buckets, the practical, the social, and the emotional. And what they said is you were having an emotional conversation with your wife and she was having a practical conversation back with you. And so you guys could not hear each other. We're literally using different parts of our brains and, and it's all about matching the matching principle. It's known that have the same kind of conversation at the same time which as you pointed out is so powerful because that's how we get other people to trust us, to listen to us. And that's how we learn who they are. Right. The practical, the emotional and the social. Yeah. Or another way of saying that is do you want to be heard? Do you want to be hugged? Do you want to be helped? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And they teach this in schools to teachers, ask your kids. And and actually when I get home from work now and I'm start complaining about my day, Liz, my wife will say to me, do you want me to help you come up with solutions or do you just need to vent and you want me to listen to you? Mm-hmm. And it feels so nice to have someone ask you that, right? Because 
Because up until that moment, I actually didn't know the answer myself. And as soon as she says it, I can say like, oh, no, no, I just need to vent. Like, this isn't this isn't really a big deal. This is just me being frustrated. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's nice because it's a moment of self-reflection, right, where you can pause and take that moment and say, wait, wait, what is the purpose of the words that are coming out of my own mouth? That's exactly right. And and, and there are these people who are consistent super communicators Mm -hmm. who can connect with almost anyone. And what we know about them is that they do a couple of things differently from everyone else. First of all, they ask a lot more questions, like 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person. Mm. They tend to reciprocate vulnerabilities and authenticity, as you mentioned before, but also reciprocate laughter or reciprocate sadness. Mm-hmm. If I see someone who says mentions something kind of sad, I don't, I don't try and cheer them up. I try and say, I'm really sorry. That sounds really hard. Like, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. But the, the most important thing that they do is that they show you they want to connect. Because conversation is so overwhelming and potentially scary, Right particularly a hard conversation, something you've been dreading talking about, that when someone shows you that they want to connect with you, when they notice that you've said something emotional and they need to meet you emotionally, when you say something practical, like, look, we got to figure out where we're going to on vacation next year. And I say, okay, let's talk about airfares, right? That's how we show that we want to connect with that person. And it's that showing of, of desire of connection that can make all the difference. Mm-hmm. There, there's some things to dig into, particularly when it comes to hard conversations, because so much of success in life comes from being willing to have just a few key hard conversations. Absolutely. And most people spend their lives avoiding those difficult conversations. There's these hard conversations we sometimes avoid. And one of my favorite ones is asking for a raise or asking for higher pay when you get hired. Mm. And what's really interesting is that we know People who ask for raises or people who ask for higher pay when they get hired, over the course of their lifetime, the financial impact is massive. Right. Right? Because you're asking for an extra $100 a week. But if you work there for 12 years right. <laughs> and you get a 5% raise each time, right? You know, like that $100 gets magnified enormously. Right. But what's interesting is think about if everyone hates that conversation, mm-hmm. right? None of us look forward to saying like, I'd like this job, but I need you to pay more. But think about the difference if someone comes in and they seem really, really emotional about it. They say like, look, I really need this money. I'm really scared to ask for this because I want this job so bad, but but I need this to, in order to get childcare for my kid. And the other person is completely practical and says, well, you know what? We can afford to pay another 2%, but we can't go higher than that and does not engage at all with the issues that this employee just raised. Mm. It feels like you're not listened to, right? It feels like you're, you're, all your concerns are being disregarded or vice versa. Right. And, and so that's why this matching conversation is so important. This matching principle is so important is because when I indicate to you that this is a practical matter for me or an emotional matter or a social issue, when you respond in kind, you prove to me that you're hearing me. And, and once we know that we should do that, that conversation gets so much easier. It takes so much of the anxiety out of having the discussion. Because you know that your goal is not necessarily to to browbeat the other person or convince them, or your goal is just to make sure that they understand you and to understand them in turn. That lowers the expectations, but it, it actually means you'll be more persuasive. I'm hearing echoes of you'll want to validate somebody in conversation, yeah. but, but I feel as though this is somehow 
more nuanced or more layered than simple emotional validation. Oh, absolutely. This experiment that was done where they brought together a bunch of people who were gun rights advocates. Oh, yeah. And a bunch of people who were gun control activists. Right. Like, these are people who are usually at each other's throats. Right. They hate each other. So they bring them all together in Washington, D.C. And they say, look, we want you to have a, a civil conversation. And our goal here is not to have you convince each other of anything. It's just to see if you can get like spend time with each other without screaming. Right. And so before they start the conversation, they teach them some skills. And one of the skills is this thing called looping for understanding. Mm -hmm. And it has three parts. The first is ask a question. And some questions are more powerful than others. We could talk about that. The second step is repeat back what you heard the person say in your own words. Then the third step is, and most people forget this one, ask if you got it right. And the reason why that's so powerful is because that person is proving that they're listening to us, right? They're proving that they want to hear what we have to say. And to your point, this is how we actually create that connection is by proving that we want to hear what the other person is saying rather than we're just waiting our turn to, to speak. Right. And so that's how people feel seen. That's exactly how people feel seen is because, is because you have proven to me that you, you actually paid attention to what I was saying. Or, or you ask me a follow-up question. Sometimes it's not repeating what we heard, but it's asking a follow-up question that, that makes clear I was paying attention to what you said. But the more tense a conversation gets, the more the more the, the odds of something bad happening in that conversation are, or the more worried you are, the more you loop for understanding, the easier it's going to be. What was interesting about that particular example, the the gun rights uh, advocates meeting the gun control a uh, activists. When those two groups met face to face, there was, with some training, there was some some common humanity that the two groups could recognize in one another. But then they proceeded to try to take the conversation online yeah. onto Facebook. <laughs> and within like thirty minutes, they were calling each other jackbooted Nazis. It was yeah. it was a disaster. So let me ask you a question um, to explain like what we've learned about how to how make that better. When you go online, when you post on X or Facebook or Instagram, or even when you just text your friends, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. If you're going to call one of your friends mm -hmm. or you're going to text one of your friends, do you communicate differently over those two channels, those two different ways of communication? Phone calls versus text? Yeah. Yes. And I would add a third channel. Okay. Voice notes. Oh, interesting. Because voice notes are asynchronous. Yeah. So they don't demand that the other person be available at the exact moment, right? We don't both have to be available at precisely 3 p.m. on a Tuesday. But with a voice note, I can, A, I can use more words. Yeah. So it doesn't have the, the constraints of brevity that a text right. message often has. And by virtue of using more words, I mean Hemingway might not approve, but <laughs> but I can get out much more nuance. You know? And probably your tone of voice, exactly. right? You're using you're using your non linguistic um, skills to to convey. So what I just heard, which is fascinating, and I love I love your answer, is you just explained to me that there's a couple of different rules that you use for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. That when you're leaving a voice note for someone, you probably realize it's asynchronous, so you might say. Hey, Jenny, you know, I'm standing on the corner and it's two o'clock. I'm about to go to my gym class, but I just wanted to let you know. Yep. Right. So you, you help situate me, which on a phone call, you probably don't need to. Right. And what's interesting is 
what that experiment showed and what we've learned in many other settings is our brains evolved to be these communication machines, um, much more than any other species, but they evolved in a very different time, right? They evolved before computers emerged <laughs> or before telephones emerged. And what's happened since then is that we've adapted to them. So one of my favorite examples of this, it, we've adapted to learn the rules that each form of communication requires. So about a hundred years ago, when telephones first became popular, there were all these articles that said, no one will ever have a real conversation on a phone because you can't, you can't see each other. And we need that. And what's interesting is they were right at first. If you read early transcripts of early phone calls, it's people basically talking in this stilted, weird manner, mm. like almost using it like a telegraph, like. Here's the, here's the grocery list I need you to pick up. <laughs> but then by the time you and I were teenagers and everyone else, we could talk for like seven hours at, at night, right? right. It felt amazing. And so what happened is that we learned how to talk on the phone. We learned that there are different rules for phones than there are for face-to-face. -face. And in fact, we don't even realize it, but when we're talking on the phone, we tend to overemphasize our words, over-enunciate a little bit more. We put more emotion into our voice because we know the other person can't see us. Now, when it comes to online... The same thing is true, right? A post versus a text versus sending someone emojis versus yeah. you now comment Again? and email. Yeah. yeah, they all have slightly different rules. And when everything goes wrong, and this is what happened with the guns experiment, is when people forget to remind themselves that there are rules that differ from communication form to communication form. I can be sarcastic when I'm talking to you on the phone or in person because you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. But when I'm typing you an email, even though I hear the sarcasm, you won't. And so you'll take what I'm typing seriously and get upset or offended. So just taking a split second to remind ourselves, oh, here's the rule when it comes to texts versus emails versus a phone call. It takes like two seconds, but it makes all the difference. Right. And oftentimes things that are posted online need more context, more disclaimers, more... Politeness. Yeah. Yeah. Ability more proving that we are listening. Hey, you know, instead of just being like, Jim, I think you're a moron saying, Jim, what I hear you saying is this. And I disagree. So I think you're a moron. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's so much nicer. <laughs> you probably should call him a moron and all. But, but the point being that like, if you've proven you've listened, he's probably going to listen back to you. Right. But how, in a world where most people don't do this, how do we I mean, do we just be the example, but be the minority example? I mean, how do you actually well, put this into practice? I think part of it is because that same mirroring we were talking about, if you do things that make for good communication, whoever you're talking to will start doing them too. This is the interesting thing about listening for, for understanding or looping for understanding is that when you do it, suddenly everyone else you're talking to will do the same thing. They'll, they'll be like, oh yeah, no, what I hear you saying is... <laughs> Because we have this, this instinct for social mimicry. And so the more that we model the right behavior, the more everyone we're talking to does exactly the same thing, even if it's unnatural for them. That's okay, because let me ask you this. If you've had a bad day and there's someone you want to call and you know is going to make you feel better, who, who is that? Does that name pop into your mind right away? Yeah. Who is it? Uh, so my best friend, Mo, she lives in Arlington, Texas. Okay. We've known each other since we were 18. Uh, we met freshman year of college. Oh, wow. And she's she's really been my best friend ever since. We've been best friends for 
I don't want to say how long ago freshman year of college was, but it was a long yeah, time ago. Yeah. yeah. And so she's a super communicator for you and you're probably a super communicator for her right back. Right. Now, let me ask, how often do you call Mo? God, not often. Maybe once every three months. Yeah. Four months. But do you love, like when you talk to her, do you just love? Yeah. Just yeah. that we pick right up. This is why being a super communicator is so powerful is because you play that role in all kinds of people's lives. Like you get invited into more conversations. You get access to opportunities you wouldn't have otherwise, you're more influential because people want to talk to you the same way that you want to talk to Mo. And even though you guys are super communicators for each other, there are some people who are super communicators for everyone, right? Because they spend a little bit more time thinking about how to have their daily conversations, it becomes a habit. And once it does, everybody wants to call that person when they've had a rough day or that could be overwhelming. Or just when they when they see them walking down the street, they say, How come join us? Because we have something we're talking about. And they know that inviting them in would make that conversation better. Right. So going to just how to be a more influential person in any arena of your life. Yes. Being a super communicator is absolutely. And we know this from study after study. There's a guy named Bo Cybers at Dartmouth who's done lots of research on, on these kind of folks. And one of the things that he found is he refers to to super communicators as high centrality participants because they're so central to the conversation. They're so central to the social life of the university that they're at. They're central to the to how work gets done within their workplace. They're the one that everyone turns to when they have an idea or a suggestion or it needs some advice. And that's a real form of, of influence. Right. And to, just to clarify uh, for the people listening, you can be an introvert and still be a social communicator, be high centrality. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we know is that I thought that super communicators would all be extroverts and really charismatic. And that's not true at all. They, there's some that are extroverts and some that are introverts. There's some that are charismatic and some who like, eh, you know, not, not the most charismatic guy I've ever met. That doesn't matter. And they aren't born knowing how to be super communicators. Rather, they learned a set of skills and anyone can learn those skills. And once we learn them, our brain is designed to make them into habits because our brain wants to communicate well. It's, it's how we evolved. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, so what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. 
Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly. But you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Like your hair, your net worth, I hope. Your income, your investment portfolio. Again, I hope, I hope. Hey, how about the revenue in the business that you run on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you just started or whether you've been in business for 10 years, whether you're selling accounting textbooks or windshield wiper repair kits, and whether you're selling in person or online. If you're online, know that Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can leverage AI with Shopify Magic, an AI-powered all-star. Now, what I like about Shopify is that it's there for you, whether you are just beginning or whether you are doing your first million in revenue, your first dollar to your first million plus. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. They have award-winning help. And businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Paula now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Paula. So I wrote this book, The Power of Habit. Mm -hmm. And there's this core idea, which is that every habit has a cue, a routine, and a reward. Mm -hmm. And that we tend to focus on the routine, which is the behavior, but it's actually the cues and the rewards that really shape how we behave almost unconsciously. Right. And it turns out that communication is a ton of habits, right? If, if you had to think really hard about every word you said, it would be impossible to have a conversation. Right. It would take forever. So what we do is we rely on these habits that we've developed and, and, a lot of writing super communicators was about saying, here's the right habits because your brain has evolved to make these into habits really quickly. I just need to show you what the right skills are so that you grasp onto them. If then we find that certain cues push us towards certain communication habits that we don't like, yeah. like somebody says words that trigger us, yeah. that emotionally trigger us, and we then have a knee-jerk response how do we break out of that loop? It's a great question. And this happens a lot in, in social, in every kind of conversation, but let's take social conversations as mm -hmm. an example, right? When we're, imagine if we're talking about something like race or gender mm -hmm. 
and I said to you, you know, as a woman, you t- tell me how you think about this. Mm-hmm. It could very well be, and this is very legitimate, that you hear that, and that's a cue for you to be like, I, look, I like. Yeah. Now you're pigeonholing me. Like I'm the woman. I'm supposed to give the woman's perspective. I'm so much more complicated than just a woman. I'm, right. I'm a woman, but I'm also a podcast host and I'm a friend and I'm a daughter and yeah. you know, I have relationship partners and you used to be a journalist. There's mm-hmm. all these things in your background, all these other identities that you possess. Right. And so when we hear that cue, someone says, you know, as a woman, how do you think about this? We can build the habit to say, you know, let me answer that but this way. I see this not only as a woman, but as a sister mm-hmm. and as a professional and a business person and as someone who used to be a journalist. And this is how those different perspectives help me understand the question you just asked. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing there is you're bringing all those other identities onto stage with you. And the truth is all of us contain dozens of different identities. And when someone tries to push us into just one of them, that's when it feels like a stereotype. That's when it feels bad. But when I'm talking to someone and I say to them, you know, I'm just wondering what you think about policing, because I know that you're, you know, you're a father and you're also black, but you're also a lawyer. And that probably gives you a different perspective on policing. And I know that you actually are really involved in your community. And so you work with the police department. I'm just wondering, like, what do you think about policing, given all those different perspectives you have on it? Hmm. That feels like an invitation for someone to share something meaningful. Right. Rather than trying to push them into, you're the black guy. I'm wondering what you think about policing. When we inevitably encounter some type of a triggering cue from a habit point of view, yeah. how do we create the gap between cue and response? Yeah. So there's, there's something known as implementation intentions, mm. which are, are key to, to designing any kind of habit, which is that so at first we have to remind ourselves, so usually if-then statements. If X happens, I will do Y, right? If then. And oftentimes it's just a matter of having a bad conversation and then asking yourself, where did it go off the rails? What was the cue for me that made me defensive or that made me angry or that made me want to want to turn away? And when you find that cue, and maybe it's someone pushing you into a corner, maybe it's someone sort of flaunting their own wealth or success in a way that like kind of makes you feel bad, you can say to yourself, okay, the next time that happens, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my plan. And the best thing that you can do is ask a question. And in particular, there's some questions that are more powerful than others, and they're known as deep questions. And a deep question is something that asks about your values or your beliefs or your experiences. And deep questions don't have to appear deep. If you meet someone who's a lawyer, you can ask them like, oh, what made you decide to go to law school? What do you love about practicing the law? Those are both deep questions. They invite someone to tell you something meaningful, but they don't appear overly intrusive. And so to your question, that implementation intention, if I can see where something went wrong in a conversation, I can tell myself the next time that happens, I'm going to ask a question, a deep question, Mm. and see how that changes things. Mm. On the topic of deep questions, when you say that deep questions are often about beliefs or, or thoughts or feelings, what is notable is that that's distinct from facts. Yeah. And so much of small talk is, 
I want the facts. Right. Where, where did you grow up? Do you have siblings? <laughs> yeah. I mean, where'd you go to college? Yeah, exactly. What kind of car do you drive? Right? It's like you, you go on a series of first dates and they're all insufferable Absolutely. because they're all the same litany of questions asked over and over. They're all dead ends, right? Because right. you answer that question, you're like, well, I grew up in Cincinnati. Yeah. And they're like, oh, I've never been to Cincinnati. <laughs> okay. <laughs> End of that line. So, so the rule here is right. don't ask someone about the facts of their life. Ask them how they feel about their life. Right. If instead of asking you, where did you, where did you grow up? I said, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what was the best part about growing up where you did? Did you grow up in a place that's good for, for childhood? Then right. like, you're going to mention to me that you're from Cincinnati, right? Right. But then you're also going to tell me so much more about what your experiences were like there. Right. And the best part is once you do that, it's totally natural for me to answer the same question I just asked without you having to ask it. Oh, you grew up in Cincinnati and you had like a great experience. It's funny. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And like, it was the same thing. Like I was a big fish in a small pond and it, I, it felt wonderful. That's how we start having a dialogue back and forth is when you ask about feelings rather than facts. Right. What's notable about that is that feelings don't have to be touchy feely. No, not right? at all. It's just, right. Hey, what, what did, what did you think of that? Exactly. You like, didn't even have did, to use the word feel. What did what you did, think of that? Yeah. What? what did you make of that? I saw that you really liked this one memo. Like, tell me, tell me why you think it's important. Like, why should I go read that memo? Yeah. Now suddenly you're asking someone to tell you something real and authentic and potentially vulnerable about themselves. Right. And if you reciprocate that vulnerability, then you're, you can't help but feel more connected to each other, more trusting of each other. It's literally hardwired into our brains. Right. You mentioned that we're, we're at the golden age of beginning to understand how we communicate. Yeah. That was an interesting statement because humans have been communicating for a long time. hundreds of thousands <laughs> of years. I mean, there was what, about a 150,000 year era where we were anatomically modern humans, but had not yet developed language. Right. The writer Tim Urban refers to that as the unimpressive era. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not a lot happened. <laughs> But after that, for the bulk of human history, there has been spoken language. Yes. But it's only very recently that we've begun to actually study the impact of spoken language on human connection. That's in the human brain and the human mm -hmm. body. Communication has always been our superpower. It's the thing that sets us apart from every other species. It's the thing that usually explains why some people are more successful than others is because they have the ability to communicate alongside their skills. And so this, this superpower of communication, the way that it works is actually kind of interesting. We're in a conversation right now. Mm -hmm. And even though neither of us are aware of it, what's likely is that our eyes have started dilating at the same rate. Our breath patterns have started to match each other. Mm. We're, we're holding our bodies in similar ways mm -hmm. and we're using similar gestures. Right. And even more importantly, within our brains, if we could look inside both of our brains, what we would see is that you and I are starting to think alike. It, our neural activity is actually starting to look very, very similar if we were putting it on a graph. And within psychology and neurology, this is known as neural entrainment. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about it because if I describe a feeling to you or, or an idea, the way that you actually make sense of that is you experience that feeling a little bit yourself, or you experience that idea. The thing that's happening in my brain starts to happen in your brain. And when they do, when they start to align, when we become entrained, that's when we feel connected. That's when we can really understand what the other person is saying. And that's why having the same kind of conversation at the same moment is so important. 
is because if I'm having an emotional conversation and you're having a practical conversation, then we're using different parts of our brain. But when we're on the same wavelength, when we both say like, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to start by talking about, you know, the practical aspects of this, our brains become more aligned. Mm -hmm. And then when we move into the emotional, we'll move there together. Right now, you and I, we're sitting in the same room. We're a few feet apart from each other, right? We have all of these biological ways yeah. in which we are starting to mirror one another. What's interesting is if we were having this conversation over the telephone, yeah, the same thing would happen. Oh, that's Our exactly pupils would begin dilating at the same rate without us even totally understanding it. When, when we have Zoom calls, yeah, people do the same thing that they do when they're in the same room together. That was exactly what my question was going to be. And it's You read my mind. Because <laughs> we're on the same wavelength. Right? We're having the same kind of conversation. We're connected. And that's exactly what it is, is that when you connect with someone, it's not just your imagination. You're genuinely connected with them. You're connected with them physically. More importantly, you're connected neurally. Your brains start to look alike. There was a really interesting experiment by this guy, Uri Hassan at Princeton, where he had this young woman tell this really complicated story about her prom night. Mm -hmm. And he scanned her brain while she was telling it. And then she scanned the brain of the people listening to her. And what he found was that the brains of the listeners started to look more and more similar to the woman who was telling the story until it all seemed like they were actually having the same thoughts at the exact same moment. And the people who were most aligned with her, who were most entrained, they understood the story better than anyone else. They could understand the nuances and the small details. They remembered characters' names. This entrainment, this alignment which we can create. It's just a set of skills to know how to recognize it and to, to invite others to connect with you and to connect with them. This entrainment is, is the superpower. It is the thing that makes people trust and like each other, that makes people want to listen to each other, that makes people want to build things together. Is that the shortcoming of communicating by text? Does that, there's a failure of neural entrainment? There very well can be. If we're not giving enough information, if we're not recognizing the rules of sending someone a text versus having a conversation by telephone, I have two kids who are 12 and 15. They text all the time and they, they manage to Im imbue a lot of emotion into their texts, right? They use emojis, the, right. the emojis all mean like different, they're feeling different ways and they're kind of, it's almost like a code. So the answer is no, it's not that one form of communication is inherently better than another. But it is true that different forms of communication have different rules. And if we don't pay attention to those rules, if we don't remind ourselves of those different rules, that's where we make a mistake. Right. But even still, the neurological matching, that neural entrainment that you're talking about, the literally our brains being on the same wavelength, can that happen in a text conversation? Oh, absolutely. It, it's right. It's harder mm -hmm. because you don't have as much information. But think about when you get a really funny text from a friend mm -hmm. and it makes you laugh out loud, like without even meaning to. Right. You're having the same experience that friend had when they sent it to you, when they first saw it, that they're hoping you would have. It might not be happening in exactly the same moment. Right. Or if a friend sends you a text or an email talking about how sad they are, that something just happened, they just found something out, they just lost their job. You experience that same emotion that you know that person was experiencing when they wrote that. That's what empathy is. Empathy is entrainment. And that's what allows us to communicate with each other. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search. It's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. about the juror who saved a man who really did not deserve prison. There's very few trials where they've let cameras and recording devices into the jury room. Mm. There's actually only about five in the history of America. And so I got my hands on one of them and I was able to read the transcript and watch the video. And this was a, the trial of a guy named Leroy Reed, who was an ex-con. He wasn't doing well in society. And, um, at one point he'd signed up to become a private detective through like something in the back of a magazine mm -hmm. and they told him to go buy a gun. So he goes down to the store gun store and he buys a gun and he brings it home. He never actually touches the gun. He just puts the box up in his closet. Nice. And then a couple of weeks later, he's down by the courthouse and hoping someone hires him to like solve a crime, which obviously didn't happen. And a cop stops him and he asks for some proof of ID. And the only thing Leroy has in his pocket is the bill of sale from getting the gun. So the cop says, you know, bring the gun down to the station and they arrest him right away because in Milwaukee, it's against the law for an ex-convict to own a firearm. Mm. So he goes on trial and they go into the jury room after the full trial. There's a lot of disagreement, right? Some people say like, this isn't just like, I don't think that, that this guy deserves to go in jail, even if he did break the law. And then there's a bunch of other people who say like, look, it's not up to us to what is just and what is unjust. Like. Our job is to apply the law. And if this is what the law, how the law is written, if we don't apply laws, that's anarchy. And they're just at each other's throats. But luckily for them, there's this one juror, this guy named John Bowley, who is a super communicator. And this was the, the most unusual guy in this room. He, everyone in the room like works in factories or the stay-at-home parents. This guy teaches literature at the local university and his specialty is Derrida. He's wearing a suit and tie and everyone else is dressed casually. 
another juror told me that he just couldn't stand bully that like he he kept on talking about like kafka and the trial and all this <laughs> stuff and he was like who are you man but what bully could do as a super communicator is he could recognize these different kinds of conversations that were happening the people who were into justice wanted to, they were having an emotional conversation or a social conversation they were talking about how they felt about whether Leroy Reed should go to jail and whether that seems fair. And then the people who are really focusing on what the law said on the law and order types, they were having a practical conversation because hmm. they were saying, look, if we don't apply the law, if we don't enforce the law, that's anarchy. And so Bully realized they weren't hearing each other because of that. Hmm. And so what he did is he subtly encouraged each conversation to happen on its own. And then he tried to connect them. He talked to everyone about the justice issue and they all agreed that Leroy Reed should not go to jail. And then he turned to the law and order folks and he said, look, I really hear what you're saying about needing to enforce the laws. And I totally agree, but there's these other laws that aren't getting enforced because people like Leroy Reed are getting arrested. Like I want the cops to arrest murderers and rapists. And they're bringing us this guy who, had a gun, let's send a message that law and order is too important not to look for the real bad guys. If we let Leroy Reed go free, then we're going to tell them, bring us better cases. And that's all it took for the law and order folks to say, oh, you know, you're right. Hmm. And they set Leroy Reed free. Right. I sh and I should state for the for the context, Leroy, his learning disability was such that he he genuinely may not have understood. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He had trouble reading entirely. And he, he posed no danger. He posed no danger. He did not belong in jail. Right. Right. That part was clear. So it was simply yeah. an application of a law in a context that that would have sent a harmless person. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I think that there's something really valuable in this example, which is John Bully is someone who had nothing in common with anyone else in that room. If they had bumped into each other at a party, I mean, they would never be at the same party. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> like it never would happen. And if they, if they bumped into each other at a concert, they never would have made conversation. They just, it was so obvious that they didn't have anything in common, but that doesn't matter. Because when we talk to someone and we match them, when they say something emotional and we say something emotional in response, when they say something practical or talk about society and we show that we're willing to go there, we're willing to engage with them, we inevitably find things that we do have in common, even if at first glance, it seems impossible to imagine. So it sounds like the root of super communication is empathy and shared humanity, is recognizing somebody's shared humanity. I think that's right. I think that's a huge part of it, right? We talked about this matching principle that you have to be having the same kind of conversation at the same time. And what we're really saying there is we're saying you have to listen to what other people are saying. And when they, when they show something about themselves, their humanity, you have to acknowledge it and you have to be willing to show something about your humanity. That's the easiest thing on earth. Because the truth of the matter is that like, we are both humans on this planet. We are both people who are just trying to do right by ourselves and the people we love. And, and yes, there are lots of things that we disagree on. We disagree on politics or gender or Israel and Gaza, lots of things that can be real contentions. But the truth is that we can talk about our differences 
and still listen to each other and appreciate each other and understand each other and connect without either of us having to change our mind. That's what this whole nation is built on. When you think about it, the constitutional convention that started America, it was a group of people who mostly, most of whom hated each other mm. coming together and arguing about what the country should look like and having conversations until they came to a consensus in writing the constitution. That has been the strength of America. It's been the strength of humans. And, and we've forgotten how to do it lately, mm. right? We've forgotten because of, because the world has gotten crazier because we stopped teaching it in schools. But if we're just reminded of some basic skills, our instincts will take over and we'll be, and we'll do better. So how does that, I, I want to know how this applies. I'm, I'm going to give three examples. Okay. Example number one, you are a middle manager at some fortune 500 company. Mm -hmm. You live in Chicago. Uh, you're 45 right? You, you're middle of your career, middle management. Your boss is just giving you this like incredible workload Yeah, and you can't handle the workload, but you're also worried that you might be replaceable. So you don't want to like push, yeah. you don't want to make too many waves. You're burning the midnight oil and this is un it's untenable. Right. right. So the first thing that I would do as a super communicator, the mm -hmm. first thing a super communicator would do is don't barge into that office and say, you're working me too hard. This doesn't work, right? Instead, ask questions. And most importantly, ask deep questions. Ask those questions that get at what your boss thinks or feels or the experiences that are making their decisions. Questions like, you know, I know that I've seen an uptick in work and I'm wondering when you started your career, when you were at the same place I am in my career, how did you deal with having just too many things to do? I know that there's a lot more demands being placed on us right now. And I'm wondering, are you worried about that? Like, are you worried that, that we're not going to make it? Or is it just that, that you feel comfortable about it, but, but that we need to put our nose down when you start doing that, what they're going to tell you is they're going to tell you what's really going on. Cause the truth of the matter is they're probably not a sadist, mm -hmm. right? They're probably going to say something like, you know, there's a new boss and I'm actually kind of concerned that I'm going to get fired if we don't step it up. And so I, that's why I keep giving you more stuff to do. Or they might say, you know, I think you're a great employee. And when I was at your stage, when someone challenged me, I got so much better and it served me so well in my career. So they're going to tell you what they're thinking or feeling or the experiences that they've had. And when they do, now you're suddenly having a real conversation because what you can say back is you can say, I totally hear what you're saying. And thank you so much for pushing me to do my best work at the pace that we're going right now, I actually feel a little overwhelmed. Like I can't do my best work. And, and I know you want me to learn from this experience. Here's some ways that I feel like I could learn from it better. Or I hear what you're saying that your boss is pushing you. And so you're pushing me and I want you to know we are a united front. I will do whatever I can to help you with your boss. What we're doing right now, it, I feel like I can't, I can't be the best ally for you because there's too much on my plate. Let's talk about how I become your ally. Mm. So rather than telling them how, rather than telling them how you feel, you're starting by asking how they feel. And then and telling then them how there. you feel yeah. and finding that connection, right? Matching each other. It, because the truth of the matter is if you march in and you say, I feel overwhelmed, I can't do this. Of course, they're not necessarily going to be able to hear you. They don't know if you're in an emotional place or if this is, 
if this is a practical problem, like you literally don't have enough hours, or if you just feel overwhelmed and it's more emotional, oftentimes when we are in that state, it's hard for us to explain what's really going on inside our own head. Right. So if they're a super communicator, they'll ask us a deep question. Mm. They'll say, tell me what you're feeling. Like, t- tell me about last week. What happened last week that it felt overwhelming? But we can do the same thing mm. and we can be a super communicator to them and it's going to make everything better. Mm. Okay. Scenario number two. Okay. You have a rental property. Mm-hmm. You got a bid from a general contractor. It's a lot higher than you thought it would be. You know that there's a shortage of contractors generally. So you would ideally like to make this work out, but you want to negotiate that rate down a bit. How do you make that play? So the first thing to figure out is, do you actually want to have a conversation or do you want to just tell this guy I'm not going to pay that much or this woman? Mm -hmm. When I see my kids, I say like, I want to have a conversation about your rooms. I don't actually want to have a conversation about their rooms. I want them to go clean up their rooms. So sometimes you're talking to that contractor and you say like, look, I'd really like to talk about this price you gave me because it's, uh, it's kind of undoable for me. And what you're saying is actually, I'd like, I want you to, I don't want to have a conversation. I want you to come back with a better price, but let's say that you do want to have a conversation. Let's say, let's say it's not a situation where you can just make orders, but you really need to negotiate. You really need to be able to work together. Mm. Then, That same principle of asking deep questions is really helpful because the thing that you want to figure out is, is this person padding the bill or is it just that actually their line item costs have gone up so much that they, they can't charge less than this. This is actually what it, what it costs to build whatever I want to build. And the only way you figure that out is by asking them questions in your judgment. Like if we wanted to take 20% off of this, this amount, what would it take? The trade-offs that we would make, get them talking about how they see the situation and then listen for what's really guiding their decision-making. There's usually kind of two kinds of decision-making. One of them is when we're drawing on the criteria of experience. So we're saying, this is something that's happened to me. This is logical to me. I think that the logic dictates we ought to do X and Y and Z. And then in other conversations, we're using the logic of feelings and we're saying, look, I don't know exactly how much this should cost, but for me to do this project, I really need to charge you this much. Like that's what feels right to me. That feels fair. Now, if you tell me that that you're in the logic of emotions mindset, that you're in the logic of, of feelings, that this feels fair. And then I just start coming back at you with a bunch of facts and figures. Well, it's not fair because this costs this and this costs that. It's not going to be persuasive. You're not going to change your mind. If on the other hand, you say this is a logic of experiences, the logic of trade-offs. And you say, look, the reason I'm charging is because the price of wood has gone up and the price of nails has gone up and the price of gasoline has gone up. And I say, well, it just doesn't feel like I should pay you that much. You're not going to listen to what I say. Right. So you have to listen to what kind of logic the person is using and then match their logic. And then you can invite them to match your logic because once they know that you've been listening to them, then once you prove that you've been listening, they'll want to listen back. Hmm. So if a person says, okay, I don't feel like this is fair is often a reflection of, hey, I am price anchored to what this used to cost four years ago. So you, you might have one party that says, well, at a practical level, the price of lumber and copper and labor and gasoline, all of those prices have gone up. Yep. That is a 
pragmatic, factual statement, plus the cost of capital has gone up because the cost of borrowing is higher, right? So all of these line items separately have gone up. And so that that makes the price higher than it was, Yeah. right? So you've got one party saying that. You've got the other party essentially conveying that they are emotionally price anchored to their impression of what something feels like it ought to cost. And so let's say you were to ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about why you think that it should be this price. Like, tell me a little bit about why you think this is the bit I've given you is overcharging. They're going to say something like, well, I had this friend right. who, you know, they did the same renovation four years ago and what they paid is 20% less. Right. Okay. So how do you think if your friend was doing it today, do you think that they would be willing to pay more because all the price, because the prices have gone up? Like, have they loved their house? Have they been happy with the renovation? Mm. Yeah. They've really enjoyed the renovation. Because because I'm telling you, we can definitely do a renovation for 20% less, but it's it's not going to be like your friend's renovation. We're going to have to cut corners here and there. And if what you're telling me is that you really want something that's like what that person got, what your friend got, then I totally hear you that it it's frustrating that prices have gone up in four years. But I want to give you what you're really asking for. And let me explain to you why I can't do it any, for any cheaper. Mm. So now what I've done is I've acknowledged what you're really telling me. What you're really saying is not just that you want a lower price. What you're really saying is I want the deal my friend got. I don't want to feel like I was taken advantage of. I don't want to feel like you're overcharging me. And I'm telling you, I hear that you do not want to be taken advantage of. I hear that you want me to treat you with respect and dignity. Let me walk through why it's more expensive now than it was four years ago. So I'm matching you and then I'm inviting you to match me and let's have a practical conversation about where this invoice come from, comes from. Hmm. Okay. Third question. What do you think? Would that work? I think that would work. I think it would be hard to do on the fly. It would be hard to do in the moment. Absolutely. That's why asking questions is so helpful is because yeah. it gives you a second to think about, to listen and to think about what's really going on here. Yeah. It takes the spotlight off you a little bit. And the truth of the matter is, you might not agree with each other. Like you might not come to an agreement. You might decide, look, the, I can't afford that much. And he might decide, I'm not willing to do this project for any less. Mm. But it's better to walk away from something where you both understand each other right? than for there to be this possibility that you could work together, that you could make this success. And you guys never found that possibility because you weren't really hearing each other. Right. And I think you're right. The key is to ask questions yeah. because what makes it so hard in the moment is that in the moment, it's easy to be reactive. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. And oftentimes that our instinct is to try and control the other person, right? When we're in a fight or a disagreement or a hard conversation or a negotiation, we have this fight or flight response and, and that triggers our need for control. Like we want to find something we can control. And the easiest thing to control is the person sitting across from us. Mm -hmm. So we say things like, if you'll just listen to me, you'll agree with me because you'll see that I'm right. Or if you just see things from my perspective, then, then you'll understand why I'm saying this. Or we try and control other people's emotions. We say, they say that they were bothered by something and we say, oh, you shouldn't have been bothered by that. Like, that's not such a big deal. You're making a big deal out of it. Hmm. Trying to control someone else is toxic. In, in marriages, it's actually one of the signs that you're on a bad path. What's much better is to find things you can control together. Like to say, if you're having this argument at two o'clock in the morning, let's, let's wait until 10 AM when we're both well-rested that when you're having a, a fight about 
you know, where you should go for Thanksgiving instead of it, it becoming a fight also about your mother doesn't like me and we don't have enough money. Let's just stay focused on Thanksgiving. Or when you're talking to this contractor saying to them, look, we both have this goal of making a beautiful house. I want to be able to build what I can afford. Can we work together to figure out what are the things that matter and what are the things that don't matter in order to have this house be what, what we're both hoping for? Mm. When we start controlling things together and started instead of trying to control each other, then even if we disagree with each other, it still feels like we're cooperating. It feels like a conversation. Right. And then you're united in in the goal of arriving at a solution together. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it becomes, it's not you versus me, it's us versus the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what you want, right? Right. Okay, so I interrupted you with the third situation. So what's the third? Oh, so speaking of fight or flight, <laughs> what happens when you're dealing with someone whose response is flight? And where I'm going with that is, and this is actually advice that I would like from you. Sure. My ex-boyfriend, my okay. last boyfriend, wonderful guy, but he has a very instantaneous knee-jerk uh, temper, yeah. right? And so the slightest perceived infraction, he will go from zero to 100 very quickly. And when that happens, his response is to leave. He doesn't get violent, but he immediately wants to leave, and then he never wants to talk about it. And he actually, he dumped me by text message. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is not cool. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, dumped me by text and then refuses from that point forward, refuses to talk about it. Really? Um, yeah. Like you guys still talk about other stuff? Like you're still in community? A little. So that was like seven months ago. Okay. And we, you know, every now and again, he's, he's also a journalist. So every now and again, we'll send texts related to his area of coverage, but we've never talked about what the happened. Most important thing. Yeah. 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 So we've we've basically transitioned into being colleagues. Right. So first of all, you know, I had mentioned before deciding whether this should be a conversation or not. You deserve so much better than oh, that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it's totally okay to write this guy off and be like, look, I don't even want to have the conversation. But let's say you do. Let's say you want to have that conversation. One of the things that's really, really powerful is that oftentimes we avoid conversations. And my guess is that your ex-boyfriend is avoiding this conversation because we're so anxious about them that we are absolutely certain and terrified we're going to make some mistake. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to let my anger spill over. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do something that I regret later. And so the way that we can counter that is at the beginning of the conversation, we simply acknowledge that this is going to be awkward and people are going to make mistakes mm. to say like, look, like I want to talk about this with you. And I know I'm going to say some of the wrong things and I want to apologize in, in advance. I hope you'll be understanding and you're probably going to say some of the wrong things. And, and I know that I'm going to get angry and you're probably going to get angry. And I want you to know if you get angry, I, I'm here to hear it. Like I want to hear, I, I want to hear what you're feeling. You don't need to protect me from that. Mm. And I promise I will forgive you. And I want to ask you to forgive me because we're both going to make mistakes. Do you think that would help? Like if you said that to your, X, would he? I don't know if it would because he ge he generally avoids difficult conversations and his response to any type of a difficult conversation is simply to shut down and say, I can't do it. Can't have this conversation. And look, some people, some people don't want to be super communicators, right? Mm -hmm. Some people don't want to have the most meaningful conversations. 
But maybe if you started by saying something vulnerable to him, if you said something to him like, look, I just want you to know, I value our relationship so much. And I understand that, you know, romantically it won't work out, but I still carry around all these feelings of affection for you. And, and I feel like it would help me understand what happened if we could talk about this, Mm -hmm. because I feel, I feel confused and, and I've been thinking about it a lot. Can we have this conversation? And I, and I want to promise you that like, I know that this is going to be weird and it's going to be hard, but I want you to know that like, I, I so appreciate this and I forgive anything you say to me and I hope that you feel the same way. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's better. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think better. once you expose that vulnerability, this, this reciprocal vulnerability kicks in when someone is vulnerable with us, it's the loudest form of communication. Again, this is a product of evolution because on the plains when or a state of nature, when something is vulnerable, you have to pay attention to it because that means either that, you know, you might want to attack it or that it might attack you or that you need to protect that member of your tribe. So our brains are designed to listen to vulnerability louder than anything else. And when you expose your vulnerability, it's very natural for him to feel an instinct to expose something about himself and say, I'm, I had no idea that you felt that way. And I've actually been feeling really bad about it myself. Like I, I probably should not have done this by text, but it's, it's saying something vulnerable yourself first that sometimes opens the door. Hmm. Would it work? I'll give it a try and I'll okay. let you know. Good. Yes. Let me yeah. know. Let me know. And I'm, I, I hope you find a better boyfriend. Oh, thank <laughs> Somebody you. Somebody <laughs> who treats you as you deserve to be treated. Thank you. <laughs> and you might find after talking to this guy, actually, I never want to have another conversation with you. Like, I'm so glad that, that it would turn out this way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've never seen so much. Uh, avoidance basically yeah. you know just deep deep avoidance and and the challenge of how do you have a conversation with somebody who is conversationally avoidant let me ask you this when when you've seen him avoid things what do you think he's feeling at that moment overwhelm anxiety okay. the anecdote that i told earlier about how his anger can go from zero to 100 mm-hmm. is symptomatic of poor emotional regulation yeah and Generally, I think poor emotional regulation means he probably gets flooded with a lot of very intense emotions and doesn't know how to process that or handle that. And so the easiest thing to do is, you know, build walls, shut all of that out, avoid it altogether. And when, when you have seen him be anxious and then calm himself, or you've helped calm him, what, what was that like? Like what happened? He calms himself by going to work. Okay. And so that's his work is his happy place. And so that's his, his method of avoidance is he just goes to work. So do you think it would, it would help things? Let's say you had that conversation. You you said to them, look, I want to talk about this thing. Mm -hmm. This is something that like, I feel really bad about. And I, I'm not going to judge you. I just want to have a conversation about it, but not right now. Cause I, I know that, you know, you're, you're going to work and that that's important to you. Could we talk about it tonight when you get back from work? Oh, he's been avoiding this for seven months. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that would help, though, if you... Not the tonight part, because, again, it's been literally yeah. months and months and months. Right. 
Certainly, I think in a in a case in which two people are are in a relationship, like for somebody who's listening, yeah, who's maybe in a similar situation with someone that they're currently in a relationship with, and that person is deeply avoidant and also a workaholic, then yes, a, a 24 hour delay yeah. is probably useful. But in a, in a case like mine, where there's already been a seven month delay, you know, and it, it again, it might be that he just doesn't have the capacity to have this conversation. But mm-hmm. I do wonder if you sent him an email and you said, look, I really, how long were you, did you guys date? Uh, off and on for about a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you say, look, we dated for a while and, and this was like, there was so much I loved about our relationship. It was a really positive experience for me. And I don't, I don't want to pick it back up, but I want to remember it the way it deserves to be remembered. But whenever I think about it, I think about this like lingering, nagging anxiety I have about how we broke up. And so I just, I just want to ask you questions about that, if that's okay. You don't have to answer anything you don't want to answer, but you would be giving me such a gift to let me ask you these questions because I feel bad about this. And I feel like talking to you and asking you questions, it would help me feel better. It helped me remember the the really great parts of our relationship. Do you think that would work? I, I think that's good too. That that and then the other part that you said earlier. I'm gonna yeah. transcribe okay, both of those. Good. Well, <laughs> and it might be that like I mean, we've talked about how different forms of communication have different rules. Right. It might be that a face-to-face conversation makes him really uncomfortable mm-hmm. because he can't he feels like he does feel overwhelmed. He's out of control. So maybe this is something that's better discussed by email, Mm. right? To send him a note and say, like, we don't even have to talk about it face to face. Like, can I send you some questions and will you just tell me what you're thinking or feeling? Because it might be that in that situation, he feels a lot more comfortable. He gets to, he gets to think about what he wants to say before he has to respond. He gets to edit himself. Mm. Figuring out, figuring out what's the source of this avoidance and then figuring out how do we sidestep it just a little bit mm. that can make all the difference. Right. Right. I hope it works. Well, thank T- you. Tell me if it does. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and have you met anyone else since then? No, no. Really? Yeah. How's the dating world? You know, New York is, uh, well, it's, it's better than Las Vegas. I okay. will say that. Okay. Dating in New York is interesting because on one hand, I think that the, the selection is better, yeah. right? There, there are a lot of people here who are really intelligent, very ambitious, very well-educated. Yeah. They read books. Yeah. I know that sounds very simple, but it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a really big deal to find somebody who reads books yeah. recreationally, Absolutely. you know? <laughs> um, and so I feel like you you find that here in New York in a way that I never found that in Vegas. Yeah. So that part is really nice. But there's also, uh, I think because there's such an abundance of people here, uh, there's, I think, a, people kind of treat you like you're disposable. Yeah. Because, you know, it's just on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. There was this interesting study that was done by these folks at Harvard Business School. It's, it's described in the book where they looked at um, transcripts from people who were speed dating and they tried to figure out who has the most success at speed dating. And they've actually repeated the same experiment by going into bars. And what they found is that the single most important thing you could do is ask a follow-up question. Because when we ask a follow-up question, it shows that we're listening. It proves that we're listening, Mm -hmm. but also 
it tells the other person that we're interested in them. Right. And I found that, you know, my wife and I have been together for like 20 years now. So I haven't dated in a really long time. But when I go out and I meet people, I find that one of the ways that I distinguish whether I want to hang out with this person is, are they good at asking me questions or do they right. just wait for me to ask them questions or do they, they ask questions where they actually want to just tell me what the answer is for themselves. They ask me, where'd you go on vacation so that they can tell me, oh, last, last summer I went to St. St. Croix, you know, yeah. like being able to ask these follow-up questions, particularly if they're deep questions, it make it, it's a good signal and it helps convince other people that they want to spend time with us. Right. You know, one of the major ways that I eliminate people in, in dating, whether it's a speed dating event or it's a first date, one of the immediate red flags that makes me automatically just eliminate somebody and not want to talk to them anymore is when rather than ask me about who I am, they start to tell me who I am. Right. Which, it's a worst instinct, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And why yeah. would you do? And so, and it, so like an example of this might be um, like, all right. So a common question that people ask when they see me is they'll, they'll ask about my ethnicity mm -hmm. because it's clear that I'm from somewhere, right? Um, but my name, Paula Pant, doesn't really give any clues. Yeah, and so there's there's immediate cognitive dissonance. People are like, hmm, "But are are you Paula? That's maybe a Latin American name, but I don't get Latin American vibes from you. Right. I get more Middle Eastern vibes. People really want to place me. Yeah, and I remember being at the speed speed dating event. Someone said, "Where are you from?" And I said, "Oh, I'm, I'm from Nepal." He was a little confused, uh, which is common. A lot of people haven't heard of Nepal. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, it's it's uh, located in South Asia. It's, uh, you know, where the Himalayas are. You know, I kind of placed it geographically. And he was like, oh, well, isn't that just, that's the same thing as India. Um, <laughs> and, and that's when I started to get annoyed. And I was like, well, are you? You're you're familiar with the social construct of a nation, right? <laughs> kind, of like, kind of like the U.S. is just part of Canada. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, you know, it's greater Canada. <laughs> and I mean, if he had like ended it there and backtracked and laughed at himself, would have been fine. Right. But he just kept digging in. Yeah. You know, and so and, you know, he was like, yeah, but you guys, uh, I mean, you look the same, you know, and I was like, all right, would you say the same thing about Pakistan? Would right. you say the same thing about Nepal and Pakistan? And he was like, no. And I was like, well, do you know Pakistan was formed 75 years ago? And, and he was like, well, are you a history teacher? And I'm like. This does not, yeah. this does not sound like he's worth a second day. Yeah. Yeah. And that conversation was over right then and there. Yeah. As if he had just said like, oh, Nepal, I don't know much about Nepal. Tell me about like, what's, what's Nepal like? Right. Then you would have been like, oh, you know, yeah. this is what it's like. Like you would have told him the parts of Nepal. Have you been to Nepal? Yeah, yeah. many times. Okay. Yeah. So you would have told him the parts of Nepal that were important to you. Yeah. Or you could have said, actually, my grandparents immigrated from Nepal and I grew up in Cincinnati. I'm basically as American as anyone gets. Right. At which point you're telling him something meaningful and valuable about yourself instead of him asserting, oh, you must be X. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Those questions, they make a big difference. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked about? Isn't that the most important question a journalist yeah, asks? Is, really what haven't is. I asked? It really is. Yeah. You know, I, the only thing that I would add is, so there was this experiment that was done almost 100 years ago now by Harvard. Mm -hmm. and, and it's actually one of the largest and 
longitudinal studies that we have. It's called the, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It, it's had different names over the years. And what they did is they found thousands of people and they followed them for their entire lives. And they were trying to figure out what made people successful, what made people live longer, healthier, and most importantly, what made people happy when they got older. And they thought that maybe having a stable job was an important part of it or having a lot of education or coming from a good family because this was back in the 1940s when coming from a good family was a big deal. And what they found consistently is there is only one thing that, that determines if you're going to be happy and healthy at age 65, and that's having at least a few close connections to other people when you're 45. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you have them when you're 45, they didn't start when you're 45, right? They started sometime earlier than that. Right. And what they've carried away from this, and, and there's study after study that shows this is true, connections with other people are the most important thing in life. They are the thing that make life meaningful. You know, the Surgeon General just said that being lonely is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And so the question becomes, how do we form those connections? Because we don't have to have a, a million of them or even a dozen. Two or three is, is enough if that's all that we, we want. And the way we form those connections is through conversations, right? When you call up Mo, even if you only talk to her every three months, mm -hmm. you guys just reconnect immediately. You know that she is there for you and you are there for her. You know that she is one of your best friends, even if you haven't seen each other in years. Mm -hmm. That is what makes us not only happier as we, as we get older, it makes us healthier it makes us more successful because we talk to people who tell us about opportunities we wouldn't have discovered on our own. And the, the really important lesson is that there aren't just some people who can do this. What the Harvard study has found is that once people understand the importance of making those connections, everyone can become a super communicator. Everyone can develop some skills to ask more questions and to share more about themselves, to loop for understanding to prove that you're listening to recognize what kind of conversation is happening and match each other. Hmm. Anyone can learn to do this. And if you do, it is literally the best investment you can make in yourself because the more that we can connect other people, the happier and healthier and more successful we'll be. Hmm. The best investment you can make in yourself. Yeah. Is is the investment of communication, absolutely, which is the 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 foundation of building relationships, building exactly and maintaining right. relationships. That's exactly right. Becoming a super communicator. That's well, the only thing that uh, other thing that occurred to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Charles. Thank you, thank you so much for having me on. This was so much fun. This is great. If I ever go to Nepal, I'll think about you. Oh, excellent! I'll ask your advice. Oh, fantastic! Or if I bump into like some nice young man who would not break up via text. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'll say, yeah. this wonderful, amazing woman. Thank you, Charles. What are three key takeaways that we got from this conversation? Number one, relationships are the backbone of a successful life, both in business, in your career, in your family life, in every facet of your life. Strong relationships are the backbone of health, wealth, and happiness. And good communication is the key to successful relationships. And so what constitutes good communication? Well, in the first of the three key takeaways, Charles Duhigg elaborates on traits exhibited by successful communicators. 
And there are these people who are consistent super communicators mm-hmm. who can connect with almost anyone. And what we know about them is that they do a couple of things differently from everyone else. First of all, they ask a lot more questions, like 10 to 20 times as many questions as the average person. Mm. They tend to reciprocate vulnerabilities and authenticity, as you mentioned before, but also reciprocate laughter or reciprocate sadness. Mm-hmm. If I see someone who says mentions something kind of sad, I don't, I don't try and cheer them up. I try and say, I'm really sorry. That sounds really hard. Like, tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. But the, the most important thing that they do is that they show you they want to come. Because conversation is so overwhelming and potentially scary, right? Particularly a hard conversation, something you've been dreading talking about. That when someone shows you that they want to connect with you, when they notice that you've said something emotional and they meet you, meet you emotionally, when you say something practical, like, look, we got to figure out where we're going to on vacation next year. And I say, okay, let's talk about airfares, right? That's how we show that we want to connect with that person. And it's that showing of, of desire of connection that can make all the difference. That is the first key takeaway. Key takeaway number two. There are three types of conversations that people can have. There are practical conversations, emotional conversations, and social conversations. People want to be helped, heard, or hugged. In this key takeaway, Charles Duhigg shares why it's important to understand which type of conversation you're having in order for the conversation to be successful. We think of discussions as being about one thing, but actually there's many kinds of conversations and they all fall into these three buckets, the practical, the social, and the emotional. And what they said is you were having an emotional conversation with your wife and she was having a practical conversation back with you. And so you guys could not hear each other. We're literally using different parts of our brains and and it's all about matching, the matching principle, it's known, to have mm-hmm. the same kind of conversation at the same time, which, as you pointed out, is so powerful because that's how we get other people to trust us, to listen to us, and that's how we learn who they are. And actually, when I get home from work now and I start complaining about my day, Liz, my wife, will say to me, do you want me to help you come up with solutions or do you just need to vent and you want me to listen to you? And so understanding what type of conversation you're having, is it practical? Is it emotional? Or is it social? That is the second of the three key takeaways. Finally, key takeaway number three. We've all been at those cocktail parties where we're making small talk and it feels kind of boring, right? Small talk in which people ask for the facts of our lives. So what do you do? Where'd you grow up? Right? When we're relaying a a litany of facts, we don't deeply connect with people. So how do we Ask deep questions of others, the kinds of questions that help us connect with one another. How do we ask those questions in a way that feels unintrusive? Well, in this third and final key takeaway, Charles Duhigg shares a tactic that we can use in order to ask people not about the facts, but rather about their feelings and their experiences. And it's a tactic that works even in and especially in professional contexts or in environments where we're just getting to know somebody for the first time, perhaps a a future business partner or a client. Don't ask someone about the facts of their life. Ask them how they feel about their life. If instead of asking you, where did you grow up? I said, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what was the best part about growing up where you did? 
did you grow up in a place that's good for, for childhood? Then right. like, you're going to mention to me that you're from Cincinnati, right? Right. But then you're also going to tell me so much more about what your experiences were like there. And the best part is once you do that, it's totally natural for me to answer the same question I just asked without you having to ask it. Oh, you grew up in Cincinnati and you had like a great experience. It's funny. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And like, it was the same thing. Like I was a big fish in a small pond and it, I, it felt wonderful. That's how we start having a dialogue back and forth is when you ask about feelings rather than facts. And so that is the third and final key takeaway from this conversation with Charles Duhigg. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do three things. Number one, share it with a friend or a family member. That's the most important thing that you can do to spread the message of great financial health. Number two, sign up for our show notes at affordanything.com slash show notes, where you'll get a synopsis of every episode delivered directly to you, hot and fresh to your inbox. And number three, connect with other people, have great conversations with people in the Afford Anything community. It's completely free and you can join at affordanything.com slash community. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name is Paula Pant. This is the Afford Anything podcast and I'll catch you in the next episode. <laughs>